Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta, and I'm coming to you from India. I am wrapping up a trip here. Uh, I'm working on a podcast with Crooked Media. It is a narrative series about India that will be coming out during the country's general election uh, later this spring. And uh, I'll say a little bit about some of my experiences in a bit. I can't really talk too much because it'll all be coming out in that show and some of it's sensitive. But I wasn't sure I was going to be able to do an episode this week because I've really had a packed schedule. But there have been a few things that have happened that I think warrant attention. And they're also, I've had a long running notebook of sorts of just things I wanted to mention briefly. But obviously the big news is this Robert Hur report, the special prosecutor with on the Biden documents case. And, you know, the, the fact that he didn't prosecute isn't totally surprising to me because Biden and Pence and some people like this are, like my friend Jason Kander likes to say, it's the metaphorical equivalent of somebody who walks out of a supermarket and forgets to pay for something and then brings that item back and says, hey, I forgot to pay for this, right? That's essentially what happened to a lot of these people. That's different than say walking, deliberately shoplifting, walking out, when somebody tries to stop you in the parking lot, you say, you don't have the item. You go home, they call you again and say, do you have that item? And you say, no, right? That's different, right? Now, this is not a segment for that. The reason why the Robert Herr report is important is not because he declined prosecution, which is obviously notable, but not surprising, but because he gave a rationale that was unflattering to the president. And he essentially said that this was a well-intentioned old man who's getting really forgetful and the jury will sympathize with him. And Biden did not love this. He went out and gave a press conference, which by all accounts was disastrous. And he mixed up the president of Mexico and Egypt, which is essentially what you do not want to be doing when you're trying to reassure the public of your age. The conduct of the response in Gaza, in the Gaza Strip has been um, over the top. I think that, uh, as you know, initially, the president of Mexico, Sisi, did not want to open up the gate to allow humanitarian material to get in. Anybody who's a longtime listener to this podcast knows that I have been unwavering on this point, that I think Biden is too old to continue being president beyond this term and to run again. People who listen to this podcast also know that I view Trump as a mortal threat to the country, and I would be a willing participant in the weekend at Bernie's experiment with Biden over somebody who's going to do active harm to the country, in my estimation. But I would rather not have that choice. And I know a lot of you who are leaning towards Trump or are likely to vote Trump have your own feelings the other way, right? Which is you, you're going to go with Trump and you would want a different choice to a lot of you, I would imagine if you listen to this podcast. So I understand, and I wanna make space for you all. And, and this is, uh, you know, I'm sharing my honest opinions. I'm not trying to hide them. Uh, and I hope this is still a podcast for you. But I think that, you know, as I put in the title of this episode, I promised a solution to this, right? So here, here are some ideas, right? If you're in the Biden camp, what's your solution here? Well, number one is you could put him out there and show, as they say, that he's this vigorous guy that everybody promises behind the scenes that he is. The problem is they, whenever they put him out, he does not look vigorous. Uh, and actually with each passing week and month, he looks less clear and coherent. I think a great example of this is when he gave his response to the GOP failure in immigration. This was a moment where he should have gone out there and been forceful 
and aggressive and pushing his message and taking the offensive. And let's listen to just a piece of that press conference, because I think it'll give you a sense of like sort of the tenor of Biden right now. It's long past time to fix it. That's why months ago I instructed my team to begin negotiations with a bipartisan group of senators to seriously and finally fix our immigration system. For months now, that's what they've done. Working around the clock, through the holidays, over the weekends, it's been an extraordinary effort by Senators Lankford, Murphy, and Sinema. The result of all this hard work is a bipartisan agreement that represents the most fair, humane reforms in our immigration system in a long time and the toughest set of reforms to secure the border ever. Now, all indications are this bill won't even move forward to the Senate floor. Why? A simple reason. Donald Trump. Because Donald Trump thinks it's bad for him politically. Therefore, he doesn't even know it helps the, the, the country. He's not for it. He'd rather weaponize this issue than actually solve it. And so I share that clip not because it's a gaffe, right? There's tons of people doing that right now. People sharing gaffes with Trump and Biden. Everybody's trying to you know, battle who's more forgetful, et cetera. I share this not because it's a gaffe, but because if this is a moment where it's just normal Biden right now. This is what I just showed you is normal Biden right now. And that is not going to cut it in this election based on what I'm seeing right now. Like, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't claim to say I know for sure who's going to win. I'm just saying this guy is not going to be able to make a forceful case for the future. He's not going to be able to fight back against Trump. And he is not going to be able to make a clear and coherent case of the American people on anything. And that clip is an example of it. He had all the cards, right? The GOP failed to push immigration, the issue that they were trying to hang you know, around his neck like the anchor of the Lusitania. And he had it teed up for him and he swung and he missed. So if you can't put him out there and show that he's actually more vigorous, the second option is to hide him. Uh, but that's not an option either. Right now he's behind and he's going to take ridicule and lose an opportunity to make a, take his message to the American public if you hide him. And he uh, won't be able to stir up all these people who have issues with him uh, who voted for him last time. Uh, and also it would beg the question as to why he's the guy. If we have to hide this guy, then how is it possible that he's the best option for Democrats, right? So if you can't put him out there and you can't hide him, what's the option? So what's my answer here? Well, I know this is kind of a shtick, but, and I, and I know this is going to disappoint a lot of you, but the answer is he shouldn't be running for president. And I know a lot of people say it's too late, yada, yada, yada. But the answer is he shouldn't be running. And nobody's got his, you know, nobody's cemented his feet in place in the White House. There are ways to take care of this, but he shouldn't run. Sometimes there's no other answer, right? Michael Jordan can't suit up and play for the Bulls today. Frederick can't hang with Alcaraz. And Joe Biden doesn't have it in him to coherently and convincingly make a case to the public. Never mind guarantee that he can govern the country well over the next four years, right? So that's the answer. I know that this was a bit of a setup, but that's the answer. Otherwise, if he decides to run, which it seems like he will, uh, it is a massive liability. It's not a guarantee that he loses, but he is increasing the likelihood that Trump or whoever else is on the Republican ticket wins. And so I hear Democrats in my life, uh, and there are many of them, say, well, it's not really about Biden, it's about Biden's team. We're voting for the team. Well, I understand that, and that's partially why I would vote for Biden, uh, and I will if he stays in, but 
Harris is the most prominent member of his team and and really important given Biden's advanced age. Uh, and she's super unpopular. And honestly, I don't know what she stands for. Uh, and I know a lot of the American public feel the same way. You could look at the data on this. The polls are pretty clear on that. And voters don't care about anybody else in the administration that much, right? I hear people being like, look at all these great people. Like I heard Scott Galloway say, well, he's got like, you know, Pete Buttigieg at the Department of Transportation. Nobody cares who's at the Department of Transportation, right? I care, you care, you listen to this podcast because we're geeks, right? But how often do I even talk about Pete Buttigieg, right? I like Pete, I know Pete, but the voters not gonna vote for the Secretary of Transportation, right? They're not gonna vote for the Deputy Treasury Secretary, right? They're voting for who's president. And right now, the guy who's president makes people uncomfortable. Now, played correctly, a different Democrat still has an opportunity to run on Biden's economic record, which as I've talked about on this podcast, actually starting to be something that you could, with a good candidate, run on. They could, they wouldn't have the age liability. They wouldn't have the Afghanistan liability. Potentially wouldn't have, I wouldn't call Israel liability because it depends on where you sit, but the sort of fractured coalition, perhaps a new candidate would be able to mend that better. They would be able to maintain strengths like Roe, slash Dobbs, the economy like I talked about, the lack of some of the insanity that we see on the right right now, election protection slash democracy protection. And they could also push bold ideas and they would just be different, younger, vigorous. And I really believe that the first party to offer a halfway sensible alternative is all but guaranteed victory, right? If I think the, if the Republicans went with Nikki Haley versus Biden, I think they crushed the Democrats. If the Democrats go with Josh Shapiro, or Gretchen Whitmer, or Gina Raimundo, or Wes Moore, or Jared Polis, or whoever, right? Any of those people, I think they are in a commanding position. Now, what would happen if Biden doesn't run? People talk about this like I'm talking about like going to another galaxy, right? They're like, we just can't. You can't, you know, Biden can't, you know, drop out right now. First of all, the guy's super old. What if he died? Like, of course there are contingencies if somebody drops out of the race or can't run for any reason. And there are tons of articles about this, but the the essential point here is it would likely go to the convention. And I know people are clutching their pearls like, oh my God, it would go to a convention. And you know there are delegates and the delegates would decide. And there have been rule changes recently that allow delegates in almost any scenario to basically untether themselves and vote for whichever candidate they like. Now, is that as good as the voters picking? No, but Biden has put everybody in this position and all the people around him, all the yes men around him have put us in this position. And I, I and I know a lot of other Democrats would be frustrated for a second, but then they'd be like, all right, let's deal with what we have right now. And like, let's not make this a shit show. Now let's remember Lincoln was picked at a nominating convention. You know, this is used to be how things were done. And although it's not perfect, we're not dealing with a perfect situation right now. And so, yes, and there are also some delegate math where, you know, as of today, people could get on the ballot in 11 states and territories if they really wanted to and could get something on the order of 485 of the 3,936 delegates. It's not enough, obviously, but it gets you in the game. I don't think that's the path here. I think the path would be Biden decides, hopefully with some advice from people around him, people who care about him, to, you know, go off into the sunset, say, hey, I have this record. I did what I could. I took us through this really important post-COVID period of time. I beat Trump, and now I'm going to govern. 
And I think it would be good for him personally, too. I think it would take the heat off of Hunter because the Republicans, I think, would be less motivated to go after Hunter in a world where Biden's not running again. I think it would allow Biden to be way more bold on things like Israel and Palestine, for example, because he wouldn't have to worry about electoral politics. And, you know, let's assume that somebody of his age, based on what we're seeing, has a limited amount of energy. Like, shit, I have a limited amount of energy and I'm 40 years old, right? I have way less energy than I did at 25. It would allow him to use the limited energy he has to be a gr- like a great president at the end of this term and continue to work with Congress. And maybe also it would unstick some of the dumb Republican politics we're seeing around things like immigration, where they're less motivated to stop Biden because he's not running again. Now, uh, a lot of Democrats see things like the special election in New York and they say, all right, like, you know, people keep saying we can't do it and then we keep doing it. Special elections are not the same as general elections and midterm elections are not the same as general elections. The most motivated voters come out in special elections and midterm elections, and they tend to be more highly educated voters. And the Democratic Party skews in that direction right now. In general elections, especially ones where Trump is on the ballot, turnout spikes. They spikes on both sides, which is why Democrats won last time, but it will spike. And I think it this there's this survivorship bias out there that because things have been a certain way, they will always be that way. That special election happened in a snowstorm. The early vote plus the snowstorm made it the landslide that it was, but you can't count on that kind of stuff. It was also a special election in New York. It's such a limited piece of data. I'll give you some probably more important data, though limited, which is that Biden's approval rating was 55% when he was inaugurated. It's 38% now. You could assume when he was elected president in November, of 2020, it was somewhere around 55%, right? It's at 38 now. When he was at 55% or whatever it was in November, just 44,000 votes in Georgia, Arizona, and Wisconsin separated Biden and Trump from a tie in the electoral college. Let me say that again. 44,000 votes in Georgia, Arizona, and Wisconsin separated Biden and Trump from a tie in the electoral college. And a tie in the electoral college is a Republican win for reasons I won't go into. It's the math. Now we have a fractured coalition, a president who's even older, a president who's no longer just running on the hopes of people, but now has a reality. And I think we could debate what that reality is, but it certainly has worn down support for him. And I think it is for those reasons and a bunch of other things like the fractured coalition around uh, Israel-Palestine and other things like immigration, I think it is highly, highly stacked against Biden right now. And I think a lot of the things I just said would not be true of insert governor Democrat, right? Now, people listening to this might say, well, okay, why are you devoting so much airtime to Biden? And I've heard this criticism about the coverage that the coverage is so skewed on, on Biden's mental state and not Trump. And look, I don't think Trump is of sound mind. He has his own signs of dementia, absolutely. And I, you know, Kara Swisher said something interesting recently where she said that Trump is probably just a louder, more energetic man in decline. I probably agree with that, but I'm not persuading any Trump voters on this podcast to go off of Trump, right? I am a Democrat. Most of my influence uh, is with Democrats. And there's nothing I can say about Trump that isn't said by a million other people. My insights are unique within the Democratic Party. But yes, Trump is in decline himself. He talks often as if he's running against Obama. He talks about Nancy Pelosi as majority leader. He just recently said that Biden's going to change the name of Pennsylvania. By the way, they never report the crowd on January 6th. You know, Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley 
You know, they did you know they destroyed all of the information, all of the evidence, everything deleted and destroyed all of it, all of it because of lots of things like Nikki Haley is in charge of security. We offered her 10,000 people, soldiers, National Guard, so whatever they want. They turned it down. They don't want to talk about that. Like Obama dropped missiles and they ended up hitting a kindergarten or a school or the apartment house. A lot of people were killed. Well, if that's the case, he's going to end up being indicted when he leaves office. He meant well. The missile went in the wrong direction. Well, we're not going to have Pennsylvania. They'll change the name. They're going to change the name of Pennsylvania. And then the things that he even... The, the bigger issues with Trump are things that he actually intends to say, like when he encouraged Russia to attack NATO countries if they don't pay. Presidents of a big country stood up, said, well, sir, uh, if we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia, will you protect us? I said, you didn't pay? You're delinquent? He said, yes, let's say that happened. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You got to pay. This would be like a mayor telling citizens of New York that if they don't pay their taxes, he'll encourage criminals to rob and kill them. It's just immoral and insane, right? I don't think that man is fit to be president. And I am, have never wavered from who I think I'm voting in this election. And that is why I'm particularly urgent about this is because I think that Trump is a mortal threat to our democracy. And I think Democrats are being insane here. And I'm not alone. My former boss, David Axelrod, has been on this corner for a long time. He's been talking about it. He started off uh, giving Biden very gentle advice. Biden called Axelrod names. People from Biden's team attacked Axelrod. And this defensiveness and this idea that merely caring about this issue makes you an ageist or makes you wrong, whatever. Uh, it's just the wrong way to go about this. Every poll you've ever seen shows not just the majority of Americans, but the majority of Democrats are concerned about this. And people are just bummed out by it all. So I do think that Biden could drop out. I do think that it wouldn't be a disaster. And I do think it would be the right thing. I think it's the right thing if you don't like Trump, but I also think it's the right thing if you do like Trump, because whatever, let's say it's 50-50, 60-40, whatever, you'd want the most vigorous, energetic person in the presidency, right? And we don't want a crisis. We don't want somebody passing away in the presidency, or I actually think worse, somebody hanging on, kind of like Reagan did at the end of his administration, unwilling and unable to do the job effectively. Okay, so a couple of the things that are sitting in my notebook a couple of education items. I saw this announcement that just put a smile on my face, which is the, the Bloomberg Foundation and Northwell, which is a hospital corporation, are partnering in New York. They announced just recently, a couple of days ago, a partnership to design a career-focused high school that'll help prepare students for uh, well-paying careers in healthcare and to address the local healthcare talent needs. This was a huge partnership. So it looks like it's a $250 million initiative by Bloomberg that's gonna span a bunch of states. So Boston, Charlotte, Dallas, North Carolina, Durham, Houston, Nashville, Philadelphia, Demopolis, Alabama, which is interesting, and Northeast Tennessee. The schools across the country are gonna serve nearly 6,000 students at full capacity. And this is gonna do all kinds of things. It's gonna give kids uh, more training-focused learning, it's gonna give them exposure to people in the field. It's gonna give them abil the ability to get college 
credit while they're there. The curriculum is going to be co-designed by people in the fields. Now, I think this is going to be a high concept type of thing where the execution is going to really matter, but I love it. And I love it in particular because right now the AAMC is projecting that we'll face something on the order of 124,000 doctor shortage by 2030. This amounts to more than all the doctors practicing in the state of California right now. So that's the shortage that we would be facing by 2030. And in part, because we are now seeing the largest generation of people retiring who have ever retired uh, and will ever retire. And that's creating a lot of healthcare needs. There's a similar issue with nurses. New York alone is projected to face a shortage of almost 40,000 nurses by 2030. So this is great news. Love to see it. Um, another piece of education data, uh, there was this uh, report, we'll put it out there uh, in our show notes from the 74, which was a poll put out by an organization called The Current Project that showed that nearly 70% of black single mothers of school-aged children believe the country is heading in the wrong direction. Nearly 90% don't believe the traditional approach to public school meets their needs, and 56% have considered changing their children's school in the last year, six in 10 surveyed strongly agreed that they were more likely to vote for a candidate who supports giving parents more choice where their kids can go to school. This this gets to some of the things that we talked about with the suburbs with Benjamin Harold last week. Parents, particularly black moms, uh, who were my main constituency when I was a school principal, are not happy with their options. They support school choice. This should prompt the Democratic Party to be more on board with school choice. Some of them are. Uh, like the aforementioned Jerry Polls, for example, or Barack Obama. Some are not, like Joe Biden, Jill Biden, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, who used to be for these, who's now not for them. Data like this, I hope, will push them to reconsider. Uh, there was another uh, piece of data which came out in late January, but it's just been sitting in my notebook, which is a Gallup poll, which showed that the majority of Americans supported the Supreme Court striking down affirmative action and the crosstabs here are really interesting. Every demographic group supported decision. 68% of adults, 68% of Hispanics, 52% of blacks, 63% of Asians, 72% of whites. Every demographic group, including the demographic groups who would ostensibly be benefiting from this. That is interesting. And we will revisit the affirmative action debate soon. We've done so much on it, obviously. Um, and then finally, Dartmouth is bringing back the SAT, ACT. Good for them. We tried to get the Dartmouth president to come on this pod. If you know her, send her a note. Uh, I would love to ask her about this. I really support this. I think this makes a lot of sense for reasons that are in some ways related to the affirmative action debate. I think that objective measures really matter. And I think, yes, subjective, qualitative ones have a place, but uh, the mixture of the two, I think, is empowering. A couple of those small points. Uh, these are just things that have been on my mind. I thought that this was a really weird year for movies. And I think there are a lot of movies like Killers of the Flower Moon, which we're being told we should love, but they're so long. And to me, winding and almost disrespectful of the audience. Like I think there's some of these people like Scorsese who just are like, I don't need an editor anymore. And then you have to sit through these long movies that don't seem to have a beginning, middle, and end. But I'm old-fashioned. I like the classical structure. I like a beginning, middle, and end. I like characterization. And I like editing. And I like a movie that is somewhere on the order of two hours or less. And there are two movies that are getting a lot of acclaim that I just saw in the past week or two that fit this bill. One is this movie called American Fiction, which is absolutely incredible. Uh, it's got Jeffrey Wright, who's insanely good in this. And I think our audience will love this movie because it touches on a lot of themes that 
we talk about on this podcast. It talks about race and America and what it means to be authentic. And like, you know, he is this writer who wants to be known as a writer, not just an African-American writer. And he uh, faces a family crisis and decides to write a book that he thinks the market wants. And it's all about how he deals with unexpected results of that. There are just one powerhouse performance after another in this movie, like Sterling K. Brown, I thought was like on fire. And I know he's been nominated for best actor for this. uh, uh, And I think he's not the odds on favor, but I think he should be, he's amazing. Another movie that I I really loved was The Holdovers uh, with Paul Giamatti. And I watched this one on the plane on the way here, which is also, this is also nominated for best picture. And a lot of the actors and actresses in that movie are also nominated for some of like the best actor, actresses, et cetera. This is about a teacher at a New England boarding school, who's Paul Giamatti, who stays over for Christmas break to watch the kids who don't have anywhere to go home to. And, you know, maybe it's the former school principal in me or whatever, but it was just a beautiful movie. Uh, It was uh, emotional, funny. It was, you know, it takes you back to a time and place in the 70s, which is a really fascinating period of time, both in education and in American culture. And it was beautiful. It was a beautiful movie. And maybe it was just because I was at high altitude, but I got a bit misty in that one. So I, I highly recommend it. A couple other small recommendations. Uh, I've talked about the Rest is History podcast on this podcast before. It is my favorite podcast, uh, probably, maybe other than The Ringers Rewatchables. And they, I just listened to uh, on the plane the eight part, it's either seven or eight part history of the Aztecs. I had previously, I think like a week before, listened to their episodes on the, the Mongols and the Khans. Uh, and that's a good pairing, by the way, with this podcast called uh, Hardcore History by Dan Carlin, where he did a multi part series on the Khans and the Mongols as well. And it's just beautiful. It's amazing, good stuff, really thorough. For those of you who like the sort of Israel Palestine stuff I've done, these guys are like historians who do that kind of stuff, you know? And I came away with like an interesting thought, which is this idea that there's a West and a Western dominance and oppressor oppressed, I think is challenged by the details of the history, both of the Aztecs and the Mongols, right? Like the Mongols are a good example where they were dominant, probably the most fierce dominant empire in history. And if not for some really strange circumstances, they would have invaded Europe and overtaken it and massacred huge percentages of the European population, like they did the Persians, like they did the Russians, like they did all the steppe people, like they did the Chinese, right? And you don't think of the Mongols as like a Western oppressor. They are the most vicious oppressors that have ever existed. And and if not for an untimely death of a descendant of Genghis Khan, we would have no Europe today. And the uh, imperialists of the, the periods of imperialism that we know would have been coming out of the Mongolian empire. So it's kind of an accident of history. The Aztec history is interesting in its own way. Like the Spanish were as vicious and insane as you expect them to be. But what I didn't realize was that they allied with all these different tribes who had major beefs with the Aztecs or who we call the Aztecs, which is actually not what they called themselves. And uh, the Aztecs were vicious and they, you know, enslaved their populations around them. They had ritual sacrifice and all that. And it actually was an alliance of the Spanish and the tribes uh, around the Aztecs who took on the Aztecs. Now, in the end, it was bad for everybody to join that alliance because the Spanish were uh, every bit as vicious and terrible as the history books say. But the Aztecs were not, they they were of their time, I would say. And then one final piece here, which is uh, there's this podcast from The Ringer 
called The Prestige Podcast. They have a sub-podcast called Stick to Landing, which is all about final episodes of TV shows. They Friday Night Lights is perhaps my favorite TV show on the planet, and Stick to Landing covered the final episode of Friday Night Lights, which is maybe my favorite t- episode of TV ever. If you are a Friday Night Lights fan, you will love this episode. It is nostalgia all over the place. It's, I mean, it was a beautiful episode of the TV show, and it was a beautiful episode of the podcast. And if you haven't watched Friday Night Lights, you should do it. I mean, season two sucks because it was the writer's strike, but everything else is amazing. And it's one of the rare shows that got better with time and they rebooted themselves uh, with Michael B. Jordan and others in their final two seasons in ways that were remarkable and amazing. One final piece here. I am in India and I had an experience yesterday that is just on my mind and I'm going to talk about a lot when I you know, released this podcast with Crooked, but I was uh, at a meeting, what they call Shaka, for this organization called the RSS. And the RSS is a, depending on who you ask, it's a, either a paramilitary Hindu organization or a cultural social organization or both or neither. It has 60,000 plus chapters across India. It's been in existence for 99 years and it has a very complex history. Uh, one of its members was accused of uh, murdering Gandhi. The organization had been banned multiple times in Indian history, but then it's been resurgent in recent decades, and the Prime Minister Modi is a member of the RSS. And so I, they've been generous with uh, with their access and have allowed me to to kind of see what they're all about. And I went to one of their shakas, which is like these neighborhood meetings that they have, and they have 60,000 shakas uh, across India every evening. And it's a neighborhood meeting of a bunch of you know young boys, elementary through middle high school age, and they come together and they do training, physical training, they do prayer, they do yoga and all this. And it made me think, I'm gonna have more, way more thoughts of this on the podcast, but it just made me think about the about modernity and the overlap with politics. And the fact that people who are either centrists or of the left, I would say I'm more center left probably, uh, I think struggle with meaning and clarity for people. Like I think right now, the reason why the right is so attractive in many ways is the clarity it brings. And I think in the case of some organizations like the RSS, the sense of belonging and purpose and identity, right? It is it is a, a homogenous, coherent organization that has a point of view. And uh, and I think religion helps with this for people who are believers. I am not a believer but if you're a believer, religion gives you an opportunity to create that cohesion, right? And it's obviously not just true of India. Obviously, like the salience of some organizations like Hamas is a good example of this and why they uh, are able to compel their people to do things that honestly to me seem quite insane. But I was watching this group and and I'm going to have complex and, and, and more sort of thorough thoughts of this when I release that podcast. But I was looking at it and saying, people are looking for meaning right now. And if you don't, give them an opportunity to find meaning and ritual and routine and to have something that they believe in and trust, uh, they will find it elsewhere. And I think this is a challenge for the left uh, and for the center, right? This idea of pluralism and democratic norms and global economic trade and all these kinds of things. Like in, in isolation, you could believe in all those things, but I think sometimes with the decline of institutions, including the church and the neighborhood, and the rise of global media and the collective conversation, people feel lost and they don't have a place to go. And they're gonna seek community. And it is up to people who have different beliefs than some of these organizations to create alternatives. 
And I think that's really hard, but I think it's necessary. And that's not to say anything about what I think about the RSS, whether it's good or bad. That will come in the podcast. And and often, obviously, the answers are way more complicated than that. So with that, I'm signing off. Thank you very much, everybody. I miss you all. I will be back in the country basically shortly and hopefully back to a regular schedule. And there's, you know, obviously been a lot of changes on the podcast uh, recently, and I will lay out at some point in the next few episodes what the plan is for this coming year, because there's a lot of exciting stuff on the docket. So thank you very much, everybody. Remember to rate, review and subscribe. I will talk to you next week.